Everybody here, I'm assuming, is familiar with the circumstances surrounding uh, George Floyd's murder. Uh, what we may not be familiar with are, is what sort of led up to that moment, uh, that horrific moment. Uh, George Floyd had entered a convenience store, and he, I think he was buying cigarettes or something. Uh, and he paid for them with a $20 bill that the clerk, teenage clerk, like his second week on the job or something like that. But part of the, the routine is somebody pays cash, $20 bill, $50 bill, whatever. You take one of those markers and you just run the marker over the surface of the bill. And if there's an image that, you know, the marker reveals it's legit, if there's no image, it's counterfeit. And well, the clerk ran the marker over the, this $20 bill, no image, so he called 911. That was what he was trained to do. And uh, so the police come, and, uh, and, and then tragedy. Uh, an article I was reading about uh, the, the counterfeit bill uh, was quoting a, a man who was there uh, when George Floyd died, and just sort of his observations about just, just started with a $20 bill, a counterfeit $20 bill, and, and you know, look what's happened since then. Uh, this is from an article on June 3rd in the USA Today, uh, and this is J.P. Hill who was there, and he witnessed what happened, and he said, I've seen my share of counterfeit bills. It went from a counterfeit bill to a man being killed uh, to millions of people around the nation just hurting, and then uh, to people being angry and responding in a militant way and destroying and burning cities. And then to a grieving, trying to protest. You just think about that. All from a counterfeit bill. All from a, a counterfeit bill. All from a counterfeit. So this morning as we're looking at this section in, in Mark 13, Jesus references counterfeit Christs, pretend prophets and, and the damage that, that can come from that. We're going to look at these false Christs, these false prophets. We're going to talk about the abomination and the tribulation, and then we're going to wrap up by just talking about the, the power and the glory that God uh, has, and he's going to demonstrate one day. But, uh, but let's, let's start with these counterfeit Christs. A counterfeit can do a lot of damage, right? So Jesus is warning us to be on guard um, watch out for counterfeits, right? You need to be able to recognize a counterfeit Christ or a false prophet. They look similar to the real thing. That's why it's a challenge, and that's why we have to be guarded. Jesus says that we can't just depend on uh, the externals, even like um, signs and, and wonders, the ability to to subdue spirits, uh, the, the power to harness healing doesn't necessarily mean that that person has God's anointing, that that person is a Christ, could be an imposter, even though, as I said, signs and wonders. You, we see examples of that in Scripture. Uh, nor is someone who speaks God's word necessarily anointed by God, sent by God, a representative of God. They could be a, a pretender and an imposter, right? So just because somebody is a Bible scholar or a good preacher doesn't mean that they speak uh, for God. And just because somebody quotes Scripture doesn't mean that they've got good intentions. Satan quoted Scripture. 
demons are excellent theologians. So there's got to be more to it than just, you know, sharing Scripture. Um, so, you know, I, I understand, I don't know this uh, firsthand, but I've, I've read that when um, federal agents are being trained to identify counterfeit 20s, 50s, $100 bills, uh, it's not like they, they sit in a conference room under, you know, the fluorescent lights and the tables spread out, and then on the tables are just scads of counterfeit samples of, you know, 20s and 50s and 100s. They don't, they don't sit there and, and study all the different kinds of counterfeits. Hey, watch out for that one. Oh, here's a good example. Check this out. Check out that, you know, watermark. Pretty good, huh? But it's a fake, right? You know, they don't go through all the motions of just trying to identify the counterfeits. What they do is they pour over the real thing. They become experts at the genuine article. They can see every fine engraving line. They understand all the, you know, counterfeit prevention tools, the watermarks, the ribbons, the microscopic printing. They just, they can feel the, the, the bond weight of the, of the cotton fiber, you know, paper. Uh, they they just get a sense of what that bill looks like, what it feels like, maybe even what it smells like, who knows. But they just become experts at the real thing. And that way, when they come across any, you know, host of variety of counterfeit bills, they're just, they just see something's off, something's not right. They don't even have to even necessarily know, oh, see, there it is. They just know because they are so intimately acquainted with the real thing. And so this is how we need to know Jesus. We need to know him so well, so intimately. We need to understand him to the degree that we can just sort of sniff out a counterfeit. Like, there's just something off about this person, you know, this spokesperson, this prophet uh, who's claiming to speak for Jesus. So how, how well do we know Jesus, the real Christ? Like, can you identify the true gospel uh, as opposed to, to false gospels. Like, the, for instance, the false gospel that's so prevalent out there that the way to be right with God and accepted by God and righteous before God and go to heaven when we die, the way to do that is just to, to obey the laws, do right, you know, be moral, and certainly be more moral than all the other losers around us. It's kind of the conventional wisdom of how somebody gets into heaven. You just become, you know, remarkably moral. Uh, and then you beat out all the other people that just can't make the cut. Or, you know, the other kind of version of that that doesn't have to do with morality and, 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 and conservatism, it's kind of a liberal version which says, no, you just need to be exceedingly nice. Be the nicest person around, you know, nicer than all of those narrow-minded conservatives, you know, with all their rules and laws. You know, be, be accepting, be welcoming, and that is how you become acceptable to God or the God or, you know, whatever's out there. This is false gospel. Because the gospel that Jesus taught us very, very clearly 
is that we're supposed to repent. And we're supposed to cast our hope, cast our soul, cast our eternity onto another, onto to someone else. I can't be good enough or nice enough or kind enough. I sin and fall short. I need to repent of that and trust in the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus who is my representative and who takes my sins away because he died in my place. That's, you know, in a sense, the gospel. So can you recognize that gospel from the world's gospel? Or what about measures of maturity? There's counterfeit Christ and pretend prophets who would say that you know, the, the real measure of, of spiritual maturity, the way that you really know you're advancing uh, is to just be the smartest person in, in the Bible study. You know, you know all the verses, uh, you've got all of the commentaries memorized, and you're just the go-to person. Everybody just kind of turns to you. What do you think? And that's kind of how you feel your maturity measured by. Or, you're always there, uh, always, you know, in the building when the lights are on and the doors are open. You just are so committed and you work so hard. And so people think that that's the measure of maturity. Or you just give so much, right? I mean, who knows how many thousands and millions of dollars uh, have been given away under the premise that, well, if I do this, then that's going to make me right with God. And and people promote that idea, and they, they, they teach that. That's how you're mature, and so on. And how does Jesus measure spiritual maturity? What's, what's the fundamental yardstick that Jesus uses to determine whether or not someone's close to him? Isn't it love? Didn't he, didn't he tell his disciples, this is how the world's going to know that you're my disciples. This is how the world's going to know that, that the Father sent me. This is how the world's going to know that you're separate. You're different. You've been saved. You've been made new. You're born again. You're sons and daughters of your Father in heaven because you love well. Not perfectly. Give up on that. None of us is going to love perfectly. Jesus is the only one who can love perfectly, but he gives us his spirit. And he puts his spirit in us and teaches us how to live and love the way he does so that we grow and we become more loving. And we can show the world as people look at us, you know, they see, okay, he's got some, some hiccups and some inconsistencies, but, but yeah, he's learning how to love. She's learning how to love. I'm getting a picture of what the love of God looks like in the way that he or she demonstrates humility and deference and kindness and, you know, just Ability to, to love the other well, right? So that's the measure of maturity. That's how we recognize the authentic Christ and, and his message and his method. And, and one more thing, you know, as we're on this topic of a false Christ versus the real Christ, you know, a false Christ is going to tell you, just go ahead and skip Mark 13. <laughs> it's too hard. <laughs> There's too many difficult things here. There's too many hard sayings as, as they describe passages like these from the lips of Jesus. 
There's too much about suffering. I mean, come on. Doesn't God just want to make you happy and comfortable? Isn't that really what his plan is for all who, who follow God, who worship God? That's what a false Christ says. That's what a false Christ teaches. The real Christ, he told his disciples, all right, guys, gather around. Come here. Come on. I've got two more days with you before my suffering, and I just want to paint a picture of you for you of what is going to happen, what's coming. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be on guard. It will not be easy, but I'm with you. I'm with you. So, so let's, let's dive in a little bit more. Like the abomination of desolation, uh, tribulations. Like what is all of that about? Verse 14, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, uh, parenthetically, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, I'll just let you know, all throughout Mark 13, Jesus is, is basically got the book of Daniel open. You know, he's referring to different places in Daniel's prophecy. If it's been a while since you've read that, go back and, and read Daniel. Um, you know, it might take you half an hour. Wouldn't be bad. Uh, read Daniel's prophecy. And in chapter 9, uh, Daniel says that this, this persona who's coming um, will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him, right? And this is a Christ figure, an anointed one that, that Daniel's talking about. So when Jesus uh, is, is sharing this message of the abomination of desolation with his disciples, his disciples all clue in to their Sunday school lesson on Daniel, and they go, oh, Jesus is talking about Daniel. And what they assume, based on Daniel, is that there's some very future cosmic, you know, end times event uh, that, that Daniel has in mind. Therefore, that must be what Jesus has in mind. So they're thinking way far off into the future, and they're thinking about the, the true end. Like, um, let, me, let me ask if this rings a bell for any of you. Does anybody know the name uh, Nikolai Caparthia? Yeah, right? Um, the, uh, the, the End Times series, uh, what was it called? The Left Behind series, right? So all these books that give this fictional account of what's going to happen at the end of the world and the return of Christ and Armageddon and, you know, the desolation and the, uh, all the tribulation that's involved in that. Um, and, and yet, uh, here we are, 2,000 years removed from Jesus saying this, and, and there's this parenthetical comment uh, that Mark inserts because Mark is basically recording the anecdotes of Peter there in Rome. This is how we get Mark's gospel is that Peter is giving Mark his firsthand account of Jesus said this, and then he did this, and then this happened. And, and so Mark puts this little comment and let the reader understand. Who, who's the reader? The reader is actually Mark's original audience. It's the church in Rome, the, the group of Christians who are in Rome that Mark is writing his gospel account for. They're going to read that and they're going to go, oh, okay, this is for us. We need to take this to heart. And Jesus is putting this in terms that are going to be very immediate. Like 
in the lifetime of the disciples, in the lifetime of the, the Christians in Rome, and, and indeed, this did come to fruition uh, because there was this terrible event that happened in Jerusalem. In 67 AD, the zealots among the Jewish community rose up. They rebelled against Rome. They want to throw off foreign oppression. And there's a three-year uh, siege that comes upon Jerusalem. Rome gets word of the zealot rebellion. They send Titus, the general, uh, to Jerusalem. He encompasses the city, lays siege works around the city, starves out the city, and then in 70 AD, the city falls, the temple burns, the beautiful stones that the disciples have been looking at are all toppled. And it's the destruction and the abomination that causes desolation in Jerusalem of the temple, right? Um, and so when Jesus had been warning his, his disciples, when you, when you hear about this, when you see this, don't stick around. Don't go get your valuables. Don't come in from the field. Run. Flee to the mountains and pray this doesn't happen in winter. And a fourth century historian, Eusebius, actually records that, yeah, the, the Christians in Jerusalem took that to heart. They left Jerusalem, they um, went to the mountains in Pella, which is across the Jordan River to the east, and uh, they settled there. There's a Christian community there, one of the diaspora churches that, um, that uh, John was writing to. So all of this is a little bit of history for you, probably more than you need to know, but I want to share one more thing. Uh, in Friday's email, the image that we included was a picture of the frieze from the Arch of Titus in Rome. Uh, the Arch of Titus was erected to commemorate Titus's victory over Jerusalem. When he and his army come back from Jerusalem into Rome, they're making this victory procession. They've got all of the captives you know, in their train, and they're carrying the articles of the temple that they had looted from the temple. In the frieze, uh, Kathy and I were there in Rome three years ago, and we, we stood under the arch, under the archway, Looked at the frieze, you can very clearly see, very distinctly, the menorah from the temple. You can see distinctly the table of the showbread. And they're bringing these golden, you know, articles, rich ornamented articles back to Rome to, you know, place in Rome's treasuries to fund the Roman Empire's engines and actually to help build the Colosseum that's like 300 yards away from the Arch of Titus. And on the Colosseum is this engraving that the Emperor Vespasian built the Colosseum with war spoils in 79. The year 79. So the menorah in the temple was melted down, became gold to help pay for the construction of the Roman Colosseum. And that's an abomination. It's an abomination to God's people. It's an abomination to God. That was a holy thing. The temple was a holy thing. Um, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But Jesus goes on to talk in verse 19 about tribulation. He says, In those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Like, terrible tribulation, right? Jesus is quoting from Daniel again. 
This time, chapter 12. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So, tribulation in Daniel's day, tribulation in Jesus' day. And aren't we going through tribulation today? Don't you feel some tribulation? All the tension, all the frustration, all the conflict, all the sickness, all the death, all the unrest. And all right, if you want to consign tribulation only to what God's people experience as persecution, I guess, you know, there's an argument for that. But let's just acknowledge this is painfully hard right now. Everything seems hard. Everything isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're all tired. We're all exhausted. We're all sad. We're all angry because of tribulation and creation. Things that we're going through as inhabitants of this broken, wounded world. That means we, as inhabitants of a broken, wounded world, are going to experience brokenness and wounds. And God's people are not immune to that. We're, we're not somehow exempt from suffering. And not only because we are inhabitants of a broken, wounded world, but, but we are we're sinners. We, we fail, we fall short, we, we make mistakes, and sometimes we just do things intentionally to hurt people. So we're not just like inhabitants of a broken, wounded world. We're, we're contributing to the brokenness and the woundedness. We're not just dealing with the symptoms. We're part of the problem. And then you add that, add to that the fact that we're disciples of Jesus and we follow the man of sorrows on, frankly, a a path that frequently requires tears to follow faithfully. It means you embrace the pain and you get messy with people's pain. So from all kinds of angles, like we're just not immune from suffering. God's people suffer. We suffer. But in light of that, there's some hope here that Jesus says, look, pray that you know, the Lord cuts short those days. Like we have this Father in heaven. It's Father's Day. And we can remember that, that anything good that we've ever seen in a human father is just a tiny, tiny reflection of the goodness and the, the love and the kindness of our Heavenly Father who is not deaf to our cries, who calls us to to lay before him our pain, who is not indifferent, who's not busy, he's not distracted, he's not rolling his eyes, why can't you toughen up? Just, you know, come on, grow up. None of that. None of that callous stuff that we see in human examples. But truly an ear to hear a heart that bends toward us. He calls us the apple of his eye. And he is intimately involved in our struggles and our pain. And he hears our lament. He hears our cries, how long? And he indeed answers prayer. I can't diagram how that works, but I know it does. And somehow even our prayers for Lord to hasten the day get answered. We're somehow shortening the time. As we, as we cry out, as we lament. So we have to keep that in mind as, as those who suffer, but, but something greater 
we need to, to keep in front of us, and that's that God suffers too. We're not suffering alone. And our Father in heaven suffers with us. The Son suffers with us. The Spirit suffers with us, groaning, right? God chose suffering. He chose to redeem our suffering by, by suffering in our place and, and putting an end to our suffering through his suffering. And so that's how we understand the cross. Uh, Peter, right, who's dictating to Mark, telling him all the details of his gospel, Peter, in his epistle, first epistle, chapter 3, wrote that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to bring us before God, to make us acceptable in God's sight, to, to take away the, the suffering for sin that we deserve, the justice and the sentence for sin, death. He took that on himself, took it away from us so that we might stand before God commended instead of condemned that we might have our sins forgiven and be clean, guiltless and, and shameless before the throne of God forever. No more suffering, no more tears, no more crying on the other side of that. And this is all, you know, part of the promise of, of reckoning with, with Mark 13 and the abomination of desolation and the tribulation. Like, you've got to look that stuff square in the face in order to understand hope in order to understand what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross. Which brings us back to that whole thought of the abomination of desolation. Like actually there was a time in 167 BC when people thought they, they oh, now we know what Daniel originally was referring to, the abomination of desolation must have been when Antiochus Epiphanes um, came into Jerusalem, the Greek general, Greek king, and conquered Jerusalem and, set, and sacrificed pigs on the altar and set up a statue of Zeus in the holy place. And everybody thought, that must be the abomination of desolation. No, it, it was sort of, but it wasn't the big picture yet. And then they thought, well, it's the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Well, yeah, it, of course, but that's not the big picture yet. What's abominable to God? What, is, what, what does he hate? What, he, what, what can he not stand? You've got to think about what does God treasure? What does he value? And anything that mars that and desecrates that, he's going to you know, have a, a right and righteous reaction and, and revulsion to. So desecrating something that he says is holy, he's going to have that reaction to. Desecrating something that he finds valuable and worthwhile and beautiful to him like the image of God in us. Like genocide. You pick the genocide. Name a genocide. Name a holocaust. You know, that's an abomination to God. Racism is an abomination to God. Injustice is an abomination to God. Abortion is an abomination to God. Adultery, sexual immorality, abominations to God. But what's the... Is there an argument for the greatest abomination? 
like the most offensive thing that God could ever witness? Is there a way to prioritize or you know, categorize those things? What would be at the top? Maybe we need to approach that question from the perspective of what does God value the most? Who does he love the most? His son. And the people rejected the son. And they crucified the son. And if you remember what Jesus was quoting from Daniel 9, strange sort of prophecy. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Jesus is quoting Daniel because Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And he finally and fully puts an end to all sacrifices because he is the final sacrifice. And he is the one that we need to cast our hope on, that that God in his wisdom can take something so abominable, so horrific, and turn it upside down and make it redemptive, make it salvific, and take a curse and bring a blessing out of it, and take something just utterly ugly and bring beauty from it. And that's what God does. He'll even do that with our suffering. We don't have to make sense of it. We can't necessarily diagram it, but that's what he does. And the cross is evidence of that. So where does all this lead? Um, well, Jesus sort of wraps up these comments. There's, there's more next week, but um, you know, now you're not going to come back. Um, uh, but, but here in verse 26, uh, Jesus says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven, right? So, the disciples weren't really wrong to hear Daniel and hear Jesus and imagine some kind of end times thing happening. Um, Jesus was specifically speaking to the destruction of the temple and, and he had in mind his own crucifixion, of course. But there is a macro category here for the, this whole discussion. And that is really when Jesus returns that that Daniel, again, Jesus has got Daniel in mind in, in chapter 7, when Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Jesus is talking about this, you know, return of the son of man with clouds and great power and glory. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, says Daniel. And you flip to the end of our Bible in Revelation, and you, you know, read in chapter 14 that John saw and behold a white cloud and see them in the cloud one like a son of man. So there's a lot to disrupt us in these verses in chapter 13, but there's great comfort here. A reminder to keep our vision on the horizon. Don't lose sight of the, the big picture, the macro, right? We don't we don't think about the end times enough. We don't, when we hear words like eschatology, we think, oh, that's for prophecy conferences and millennial maps. No, it's, it's for today, it's for us. We need to keep our eyes on the horizon. And if our eyes aren't on the horizon, maybe that's a time to do a little self-inventory. Like, why am I not groaning? Why am I not longing? Why am I not lamenting? 
Why am I not concerned for the, all the pain and all the brokenness in the world around me? Don't I want to see that fixed? Don't I want to see Jesus come back and repair all those broken things? And, and why am I so comfortable? This world is not my home. Heaven is. So think about, is your vision on the horizon? If it is, then you and I can have hope and comfort despite our tribulations, despite these sufferings, that there's a day coming when this world will be rid of sickness and death, when all the redeemed are going to stand before the great healer and praise him for our renewed and eternally healthy bodies. Imagine having an eternally healthy body. There's a day that's coming when um, hospitals and COVID centers are going to be, you know, useless. They're not going to be needed. They're going to turn those things into like community centers. Who who knows in the new creation? They'll be community centers. They'll, they'll, They'll turn graveyards, cemeteries into vineyards and gardens to be planted. They'll be empty. There won't be anything left there. That's what's coming, like this day when no more sickness and no more death. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine a, a day that's coming when God will satisfy all of our longings for justice and for truth? There's a day that's coming when, when universally everybody will recognize what is true and they will agree this is truth. There won't be any more spin. There won't be any more politics. There won't be any more, you know, lies. And the day is coming when all those for centuries, for centuries, have suffocated under the knee of injustice and have cried out, we can't breathe. And the day is coming when they will take this beautiful breath and inhale and exhale and be satisfied eternally with God's just resolution. And a day is coming when everybody who has strove faithfully to serve and to protect their community, who have done the best job they can to to care for their community, they will rejoice and rest under the care and the protection of the one who has power and authority and uses it for good. That day is coming. Day is coming when we will be ridding this world of bigotry and of racism when, when everybody, no matter what their skin color is, is going to respect and honor one another as image bearers of God. When, when, when some glorified saint with glorified white skin is going to approach some glorified saint with glorified black skin and they're going to embrace and they're just going to go, my brother and my sister. And they're going to be able to embrace because there's not going to be any more COVID. That day's coming. A day when no matter what your glorified skin color is, you look at yourself in comparison with others, you look at yourself and you go, how in the world, how in the world am I a recipient of this amazing grace? I do not deserve to be here. That day's coming. A day when our Heavenly Father gathers all of his adopted children all of his kids, 
together in his arms, embraces us and wipes our tears away, comforts us so there's no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning, no more death. And all of the redeemed will sing with the Lamb, with the, the saints, the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Can you imagine that day? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise that a day is coming when the clouds will be rolled back, when you will descend, when you will get prominence, not in, just in this world, but in, in the universe as the King of kings and Lord of lords, when you will set right everything that is wrong, when you will straighten everything that is crooked, you will redeem everything that is cursed. Lord, we pray that you would set our eyes on the horizon, that you would help us to see our suffering in light of your suffering, in light of how you are going to reverse all of that, and that you would teach us to endure well, to be men and women and children who have hope, be men and women and children who love well and who, who point to the real, true Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray.